God, thank you so much, Lord, for the praise report. Thank you, God, for reaching down, God. And Lord, as he said that the doctors didn't understand, but you said that, that you use the simple things to confound the wise, God. Lord, we have a full understanding of exactly what happened, God. You reached down and, and you touched the body, God. And Lord, you gave guidance and direction to doctors. And Father, I pray in each of these needs, in each of these situations, God, with surgery coming up tomorrow and tests coming up Friday, God, I pray you'd intervene. Lord, I pray you'd go before them and go with them. I pray you'd be with the doctors in the midst of them. And, and God, as, as Dale and, and Tracy continue to, Lord, to, to walk that very, Lord, difficult path that, that Dale is on, God, I pray that you'd touch them with your healing hand. I pray that your grace would be sufficient, God. And, Lord, I pray you'd help us, Lord, that our, that our light would shine. God, I, I think about Mr. Ed, and Lord, I think about how he never stopped smiling. He never stopped laughing. He never, he never stopped enjoying life. He never stopped enjoying you. He never stopped coming to church, God. He just, he just Lord, he enjoyed life, and he enjoyed loving on you right up to the end, God. And that's what Christ looks like, Father. He was walking through a valley that, that was leading to the end, God, with a smile. I pray you'd help us to have that, God, that people would see Christ in us, Father. And I pray that you'd teach us something tonight from your word, that we might walk out with a new excitement, God, or, Lord, even a new mission on our heart to go out, that you might, Lord, that you might reach others through us. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I really didn't get to finish up with chapter 1 last week, so I'm going to pick up right there, and, and we'll try to finish up what we call chapter 1 I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to back up to verse number 19 just for the sake of reading, and then we'll pick up at verse number 22 in our study. Verse number 19 says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And that's where we were last week. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. So we left off there at verse number 22 last week. Thank you. You can be seated but I kind of skipped forward a little bit because I really wanted to look at that word earnest. I kind of had that word on my heart, and there was a couple words before, but I went to the last page because we were out of time. But I really wanted to look at earnest because, me, that was a good note to go home on. I like the subject of that earnest. Um, That's where we get the phrase. Remember I told you where we get our phrase earnest money from. It is a pledge given to secure a contract. It is a first payment which confirms the bargain. So I had to kind of leave off there in the middle as we were looking at that word. But when we accepted Christ, we were given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. God gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. God gave us the Holy Spirit, and we talked about it's like that conscience. It's that thing that helped us change and break bad habits. He gave us the Holy Spirit that is inside of us that is to lead, guide, and direct our daily lives, but it is also our promise. He put that Holy Spirit in us. That is our promise that we have been purchased 
and the earnest has been put down, and the payment is paid in full, and that he is indeed coming back to get us. The Holy Spirit is our earnest. He is the, the completeness of our promise. So we looked also at the anointing, which is God enabling us through his Holy Spirit to carry out any works that he gives us to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to read God's word. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to spend time in prayer and time in studying. The Holy Spirit will never do for us the things that we can do and should do on our own. He's not going to read the Bible for us. That's what we're supposed to do. He's not going to pray for us. That's what we're supposed to do. So the Holy Spirit's not going to do for us the things that we should do, the things that we can do. But what he will do is he will anoint us to do the things that God himself calls us to do. He will anoint us to do the things that are bigger than ourselves. He will anoint us to do the thing that God would have us to do. He, he gives us the skills. He gives us the understanding to be able to read the book. And he interprets it. When we read, anybody ever read anything in here? And you didn't understand what you read? Our job is to read it. His job is to explain it. So we are anointed that we have this spirit within us that, that helps us to understand. So I told you I skipped a little bit ahead because I wanted to get to that word earnest, and I, I kind of skipped over this. I want to go back and put it in last week, the first part of verse number 22. I want to look just for a minute at that word sealed. It says, who hath also sealed us. One of the things that we do when we study the Bible, it's one of the things that make word studies awesome, and you can really learn a lot just from word studies, is you, you've got to remember to back up to the original language. You've got to remember to back up and to look at the meaning of the word and what's actually being said to really get the fullness and the importance of what is said in a particular statement. In the days of the Bible, and matter of fact, for many, many years after the Bible had been written and done, but the majority of people could not read and write. Even the wealthiest of people of the day, they didn't have the ability to read and write. So in order for someone to read something to them or someone to write for them, they had to go to people like the scribes. That's what scribes were. Scribes, as we know, were the keepers of the law. The scribes are the one that kept it. But scribes were also writers. And, and that's what people would go to, that somebody could write a letter to someone or they, they could go and get it read. But because most people couldn't read and write, they had a signature. It was called their seal. Whatever their mark was, I don't, I don't know. I know how we grew up. We grew up with horses and cows and, and pigs, and we had all kind of critters. And, you know, most people with cows, they have the brand. Everybody know what a cattle brand is? Do you know what a cattle brand's for? They, they, they stamp that brand so that if they're grazing open range or if they get out and they get in somebody else's field, if they get found anywhere, that brand identifies them as who they belong to. In the day, people used to, to clip the ears on the pigs. My dad can still tell you how all the neighbors, you know, well, Mr. So-and-so down there, he had two clips on the left ear. And, and then you go over to so-and-so, and they had one clip on the left and two clips on the right, or they had a, a something here. And, and, and that's what identified. What that is, that was a seal. 
That said, this is my animal, this is my cow, this is my pig, this belongs to me, and this is my seal that is stamped on here to prove that this is mine. Well, that's what the signature was. That's what the seal was. People in the day, they had some kind of mark, some kind of identifier, so that in order to enter into a binding contract, a binding agreement, to buy a piece of land, to do anything, they had to have a seal, and they simply made their mark. They made their seal on the piece of paper. And that seal, it was a capital crime to forge someone's seal, just like today. It would be a, it would be a crime... There seems to be no punishment for anything anymore, but there should be punishment. It would be a crime if someone were to forge your signature without your permission, right? Especially if it went and borrowed a whole lot of money and forged your signature. So in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he said in chapter 4, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil." Let him that stole still no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So what Paul says, he says, who hath sealed us that means that God has entered into a binding contract with you and I and he has stamped his seal on this contract revelation chapter 7 the bible says in verse number 3 it says hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads chapter 9 verse 4 it says it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth neither any green thing nor any tree but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. This seal is a signed agreement. God gives the conditions of this agreement in what we call the New Testament. That is the terms of the agreement. That is the terms of the contract. God puts all of it there in the New Testament, at least what we call the New Testament. He gives us this binding contract. He says the first thing you must do is you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe that he is the son of God. You must believe that he's born of a virgin. You, you must believe that he came for the sins of man. But you must also believe that you're a sinner. You must know that you yourself are a sinner. And you must confess your sins before God. And you must ask God in the name of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to save your soul. And because of that, your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life and you can spend eternity. That is the contract. That is what God has put there. The contract is there. You know the beauty of it? God's already signed it. He gave us a signed contract and said, here's the deal. All you got to do is sign here. And it's yours. Here's all of the deal. Here's all of the terms. Here's all the conditions. Here's all the benefits. Here's everything you're going to get. Here's eternal life. Here's everything. And it is signed and sealed with my name. All you got to do 
is put your name right there on that line. And it's sealed. It's done. God at that time sends the Holy Spirit into us, which is the earnest money. At that moment that we put our line, God not only seals us, but he puts the Spirit in us. He puts the earnest money in us, which identifies that is the earnest. I not only have a binding contract with this person, but I've already put down the earnest money on this person, and I'll be back, and I'll make payment in full because they belong to me. It's a whole lot of stuff in one little verse, isn't it? So God affixes, it says there, the seal of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. And that becomes a binding agreement for all of eternity. It is a seal that can never be broken. I like that part. So Paul, if you remember from our study, especially a couple of weeks back, and I know some of you are just getting out of a wand, he didn't get back in the, in the earlier part. But Paul in this letter, he is defending himself because people have brought accusations against him and saying that he's untrustworthy. And the reason that they're saying that, the things that they're using, is because they're saying, well, he changed his travel plans. And because he changed his travel plans and he didn't do what the letter said he was going to do, they're calling him untrustworthy. So, so <clears throat> Paul, right in the midst of basically this defense in about the first 15 verses, especially down around verse 15, in, in building his defense, for himself against what he had said in the letters while it was there. But here, he still takes time to teach the gospel. He still takes time in the middle of it to teach believers, to, to educate you and I, to expand the minds of the believer, to teach us something else about the Word of God. Even at a moment when he's, he's defending himself, he still stops to, to give us something to try to minister to anybody who will listen. He keeps making everything about Christ, right? So here, we looked at, as, as we looked a couple weeks ago, Paul is already registered his oath he's already put in his word and says look i'm not deceitful or or i'm not unworthy because of the things that have done he said i am an apostle i am called by the son of god i am led by the spirit of god here in our text in verse number 23 moreover i call god for a record upon my soul that to spare you i came not as yet unto corinth I'll study that a little bit more for my own benefit. I don't know that I really have that answer tonight. I, I'm not sure. Why, why did Paul say that to spare you? I came not as yet in a Corinth. One thing he makes it clear to the audience that, that it was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's why I didn't come. I was guided, I was led to do what I was doing, and what I did, I did by the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. But he said, it was for your own good that I didn't show up back then. Verse 24, he says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand. If Paul had come when he first heard about the disorders of the church, it kind of sounds like his feathers might have been ruffled a little bit. Anybody ever got on your nerves? It kind of sounds like you grated my nerves a little bit. And it's really for your best interest that I didn't come because y'all understand the powers that the apostles have, right? 
Jesus gave the apostles the power to do everything. He could have come in with his apostolic power and been like Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. He could have come in and brought judgment. He could have called fire down from the heavens. He could have come in, that, that, that boy that was living in that, that situation, the Bible says, with his father's wife. I, I think that kind of gives us... He could, have, he could have had them executed immediately. So he could have come in and, and brought all kinds, but I don't know, maybe that's what he meant. He said, it's to spare you that, that I didn't come then. It's for your good that I didn't come then. But the truth is, what we always see in Paul and what we see here and everything Paul does is it's always Paul's intentions to encourage the people. It's always Paul's intention to encourage the believers. Certainly he lays out a lot of strict letters and he gives a lot of the law, but, but he's always trying to increase the joy of the believer. And so Paul takes this opportunity to teach. So what we see, what we looked at earlier, what we've looked at so far in the letter, is that Paul defended the fact that he says there were some outside circumstances. There, there were things that happened. I know I wrote a letter. I know I told you I was going to come. I know I wrote a letter and told you that on my way to Macedonia, I'd stop by and see you guys. And on my way back from Macedonia, on my way to Judea, I'd stop by and see you again. And, but I also said, if I go, I'd take back. I know I told you, but there were, some, there were some outside complications. There were things that happened that caused me to not be able to do that. But right here in the text, we begin to see that there were some inward complications as well there were some things inside the heart of Paul that said it was best that I didn't come see you right then it was best that, that we didn't get together now you've got to remember Paul wrote a letter Paul did not write 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 Paul did not write 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 Paul did write this letter but he sat down, how many of you have ever written a letter and you wrote chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, chapter 2? That's not a letter. Paul wrote a letter. The interpreter simply gave us chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3, so that we could break it down. It's a study help. It's for you and I. God had the interpreters do that for you and I. It makes it easier to understand. It makes it where we can break things into individual verses. But you do understand that Paul didn't break it down that way, right? So it's not the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 and we start this whole new thought all over. Paul is simply still writing and he moves on and says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. Y'all, did y'all get that part? I decided that I would not come again. To you in heaviness. That means I already done that one time. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad but the same which made, made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them who I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart. I want, I want you to listen. You think Paul isn't upset when he writes his letter? Anybody ever have a fight with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you wrote them a letter? And you sat there and cried all over the paper while you're trying to write it? Y'all know what I'm talking about? I was away in college. I'm not the only one. Okay, so maybe I am. There's three of us. Thank you, brother. I appreciate the help. 
I, I wrote some letters that I shed some tears over. Pa Paul says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved. He says, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I don't want you to weep for me. That's not the point. I just want you to understand that you might know the love which I have more abundantly for you. Paul's just trying to say, I just, you don't understand how much I love you. You don't understand what you mean to me. You don't, you don't understand the importance of this relationship. And, and he says, but if, if, I have any, if I have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So to me, it's pretty obvious from that that Paul has already come to the Corinthians one time. He's already had a visit there one time that was um, less than desirable. How does that sound? It wasn't their best day together. It's not the day that they left um, happily departed, I guess we'd say. So it also seems to me from looking there, especially at verse number 5 and the way that it's worded, it's obvious that there's some form of rebellion against the Apostle Paul. We know that because somebody is accusing him of being deceitful. Somebody is accusing him of being dishonest, not keeping his word, and they're only using this letter for it. And it would kind of seem from verse 5 that it might even be just one person. It might just be one person sowing discord amongst the brethren. It might be something as simple as they think that Peter is the one with the apostolic power and you should be following Peter because you remember how Paul started way back about it's not about Peter, it's not about myself, it's not about Apollos, it's all about Jesus Christ. So it seems like it may even be as small as just one troublemaker in the church. There might just be this one that's causing all of this discord, all of this confusion, all of this stuff because one just can't seem to keep their mouth shut. Seems like this visit that Paul is referring to obviously didn't accomplish very much. Maybe in the minds of some of the ones there, maybe Paul should have exercised his apostolic powers. Maybe he should have silenced the ones that didn't know how to keep their mouths shut. Maybe he should have called fire down from heaven. But, but nobody understands more than the Apostle Paul that we are living in the dispensation period of grace. Anybody say amen. Anybody thankful that we are in the dispensation period of grace. Paul knows who Saul was. Just like this Donald knows who that Donald was. Just like you know who you used to be. That's what grace is. So there may have been some in the church. They had their opinion of how he ought to handle it. They had their opinion of how things ought to be done. But he understood grace I've been given. And grace I'm going to give. So instead of making threats or calling down lightning bolts or, or fire from heaven or, or, or bringing in, he wasn't called to, to bring fire down on Samaria. The Apostle Paul says, I am here to show you the more excellent way. I'm here to show you the way of Christ. See, instead of the threats, it's all about teaching the love of Christ. And it's easy for the love of Christ to show through you when everybody's patting you on the back and saying, I love you, and everything's all peachy and cream. It's harder 
to show the love of Christ when people are stabbing you in the back. And you just love them anyway. Verse number two there uh, of the second chapter, he says, For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad but the same which is made sorry by me? So Paul's first visit to Corinth. Well, let me find a place and get finished up. Paul's first visit, his very first visit ever to Corinth. If you study the life of Paul after the road to Damascus and you study all that he did and you look, I kind of believe that this first trip to Corinth is possibly the greatest time of Paul's life. It's possibly the greatest time of his apostolic ministry. And, and the reason why, if you go back and study, you, you find that he lived with uh, the, these two incredible Christian Jews in, in Aquila and Priscilla, and you find that he lived with them and that he worked as a tent maker so that he might support himself. And what you find is that as he preached the gospel that people were saved literally dozens by the day. The church was growing by leaps and bounds. Everything was going awesome. And if you study, you find that on many, many of the Sabbath days, the Apostle Paul was allowed to preach in the synagogue. And as a, re as a result of that, many people are being saved. And then we, we know that um, Silas and Timothy came and joined him and everything in the ministry is going great. And then we find out that he was thrown out of the synagogue. He was no longer allowed to preach there, but that's okay. God always works everything out in advance, right? God always has everything covered. God always has everything taken care of. So, so Crispus, who was the leader, he was the chief ruler of the synagogue. In the meantime, before Paul got thrown out of the synagogue, he'd become a believer. So the chief ruler of the synagogue has been saved, and he goes literally just right there on the corner, right by the synagogue, and he finds this suitable place for them to have church. Now all these people that are coming to the synagogue and the ones that threw Paul out are watching people literally by the hundreds get saved, washed in the blood, and join the church and lead the synagogue in the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the apostle Paul's first trip. He is there for a year and a half, and everything is great. The church grows leaps and bounds, and, and he leaves people, Timothy especially, there over the church for a little while. So you see this great time, this, this great period in his life. You don't see any shipwrecks in that year and a half. You don't see any snake bites in that year and a half. You don't see any prison cells in that year and a half. What you see is this, this great year where lots of people were saved. So you can kind of see why Paul has a great love for these people. This is possibly one of the best year and a half of his life that he spent with these people at this church. And he's trying to let them know, I want you to know I love you. I, I'm, I'm not putting anything in judgment I'm not trying to bring judgment on you. I'm writing this letter because I love you. And right now, in spite of all of these disorders and all of the challenges and all of the turmoil and, and all of the things that are going on, Paul has so many happy memories here at this place that it says that his joy is bound up in theirs. My joy is in knowing that you're happy. My joy is in your joy. I will be joyful when I know that you are joyful. I am only sorrowful if I know that you are sorrowful. And if I know that you're going through times, he said, my joy is in yours. What 
point would there be in causing pain to those who had brought him so much joy? You didn't hear that. What point would there be in causing pain to the people who had brought him so much joy? Paul's desire is to simply teach them the truth. But what we're going to see in the text is there is another side of the coin. What kind of love would it be if he refused to chastise those who are in error just to keep from causing someone pain? Kind of finds itself in a spot, don't he? I believe those are the things that made him who he is. That's those situations when I know i got to do something. I'm not really sure what. I love the people. Some of them need to be chastised. But why should all of them be chastised just because of this one or two that don't know how to shut their mouth? Or I know I need to do something. But that's where we seek the Holy Spirit. And that's what the sealed is for that he spoke of. That's what the earnest is for that he spoke of. That's what the Holy Spirit is for in you and I. When you need instructions from the Lord, sometimes you just got to pray and wait. Anybody ever had to pray and wait? And pray and wait? And pray and wait? And wait and wait? Sometimes. And, and I believe that's, that's where... That's where Paul is. So, so what we find out is that obviously Paul has made a trip there. And obviously Paul wrote a letter to them. And as a result of all that, that's the reason that we have this portion of this letter. That's the reason that, that we have the subject matter here in this current letter that we're looking at. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came... I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is in the joy of you all. Well, Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up there next week. Um, I, I certainly I want to always take a few minutes to pray because prayer is important. And if we pray today, then we can have more testimonies next week. So um, I want to take some time to lift this prayer request up. I want you to remember the surgery coming up on Thursday, the procedure coming up. On Friday, I want you to, um, if you would, to remember um, certainly um, the buns, um, all, all the requests that was mentioned, and remember um, the, the McDaniels family, uh, Mr. Ed's family. So if we could take a few minutes and just come down and pray. Um, and, and Lord willing, next week we'll, uh, we'll pick up there in chapter 2.